Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Anyone who's ever tried to lose weight, curb their temper, quit smoking, or alter any of their habit in their lives knows that personal change is hard, really hard. Most self-help books out there treat people like machines, blitzing past this difficulty and offering mechanical five-step formulas for changing your life. My guest today says such simplified solutions hugely miss the mark. He argues that if you ever want to change, it's more fruitful to understand why you don't than figure out why you do. And to understand that, you've got to go deeper, existential even. His name is Dr. Ross Ellenhorn, and he spent his career facilitating the recovery of individuals diagnosed with psychiatric and substance abuse issues. In his latest book, How We Change and 10 Reasons Why We Don't, he's taken what he's learned in his work and applied it to anyone trying to change their lives. Ross and I begin our conversation with some of the reasons we don't change, including the existential pressure of feeling like you're solely in charge of making change happen, a dizzying amount of freedom and number of options for what to do with your life, and day-to-day factors which influence our level of motivation. From there, we turn to the role of hope and faith in psychology and how these forces can both boost and restrain your ability to change. We discuss the way a fear of hope can constrain your life, why you sometimes need to embrace staying the same in order to ever change, and the difference between good faith and bad faith. We discuss the idea that you don't develop hope, but you can develop faith, and how to build your faith in yourself through embracing humility and taking small steps. Russ then explains why he doesn't really give advice on how to change beyond finding the good in a bad habit, but how patience and your social environment can also help. This show's got some counterintuitive advice that will help you see your struggles differently after it's over. Check out our show notes at aom.is change. All right, Ross Ellenhorn, welcome to the show. Thank you. You work with people who've been in and out of the, the psychiatric system and, and trying to get help and they haven't been able to make changes. But this book is also geared just to regular people who have found change to be hard. And I think we've all experienced that to one extent or the other. You know, trying to quit smoking is hard. Trying to lose weight is hard. Controlling your anger, your temper is hard. And you always have this desire, like, I'm going to, this is the time. This is, mm-hmm. the, this is the thing it's going to be. I'm going to get it this time. But then you you know, a week later, you know, yeah. you're off the treadmill. Yeah. Um, so like, what what's going on there? Like, why is it so hard to make personal changes like losing weight, quitting smoking, being more patient with your kids? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I learned w- why it's hard from these individuals who are having such profound problems with motivation and with accepting help, but it really is applicable to all of us, in- including you and me. It, 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 no one's free from this. And it's basically that every time you're trying to change something in your life, you're exposing something that's really terrifying, which is that you're kind of driving the bus at your life. And that's what existentialists would call existential accountability. And that causes anxiety. There's nobody really making things happen for me. I'm in charge. And if this life's going to have any depth or meaning to it, I'm in charge of that. And so every act of changing yourself is really this profound act of kind of shepherding your own life, right? You know, it's, it's, it's very interesting because think about what people did, at least at the beginning of COVID, in response to that. The, uh, the massive agility that people showed in changing their lives, right? But they did it in a group and they did it because they had to. That's actually easier, even though it's more massive than dieting. Because dieting is like, I'm on my own, I'm in charge of my life, and I'm making this happen. And so there's always that pressure of having to look at yourself and your own accountability every time you try to change something. 
No, yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's definitely existential. Like freedom is so scary. We'd rather just like, I'd rather have someone tell me exactly what to do so I don't have to think about this. Right, right. I mean, the, there's this fascinating, you know, work on, you know, why is it that Scandinavian countries, the people are so, so much happier? And there's all kinds of reasons. But one reason is less choice. In the United States, you, know, you walk in, there's like 20 different cereals. You know, you walk into TJ Fridays and there's enormous menu. And that level of choice actually can become depressing. Well, yeah. And we also have just choices on how we want to live our lives. You know, a hundred years ago, your choice was like, oh, my dad was a farmer. His dad was a farmer. I'll be a farmer. Right. Now it's like, well, I can be a, a blogger. I can be a lawyer. I can be an accountant. I can be whatever. And that can be really terrifying to have to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. That, that combined with a culture that says that because you're free, something's wrong with you if you don't achieve those things. So there's also a mythology in that, right? That everybody's sort of seen as this free agent that should be able to make their life become whatever it, it should be, you know? So there's like this, there's two things going on at the same time in our culture. One is this idea that wherever you are is sort of your, the, an expression of who you are. And the other is, you know, you're in charge of your life because that there is some truth to that. The second part, you know, that you're in charge of your way you respond to the world. You're not always in charge of how, where you end up. All right, so there's a this deep existential reason why it's hard to make personal change because it's scary to accept the fact that you're the one who's driving the bus of your life and you have all these options to choose from as to where to go. But there's also more day-to-day things that can either make us more or less motivated to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so there's this field around us and let, let me let me give you an example from the book and then I'll explain why that example is important. So I I have a goal in my life to give more honest critical feedback to my employees because it's not something I'm very good at. And one day I needed to give one of my managers some feedback and I really felt like this is the opportunity to change that behavior. But I didn't sleep all the night before. It was kind of a muggy day. I felt lousy. All the excuses for not doing it started entering my head. You know, maybe I'll just do it next week or I'll kick the can down the road some other way. And I was in New York City and I got on this elevator with a group of people and while we're going up, this woman spills her coffee and somebody in the elevator says, you know, I'm going to sprinkle a little uh, sugar on that to make it congeal so it doesn't spread through the elevator. Another person grabbed some napkins from their pocket and put it on it. And we got to like the fifth floor and this guy got out and said, that was the best elevator ride ever. And everybody started cracking up. And then we got to the 10th floor and this businessman gets out and he yells back to us, same time, same date next year, let's all meet here on the elevator. And we just lost it. And I got off of that elevator and I was totally prepared to give this manager feedback. Now, what happened in that elevator ride? Well, we all live in these fields and the fields are very complex. And you cannot predict when those fields will shift. And the fields are basically, there's a bunch of forces moving you forward. There's self-esteem. There's all kinds of traits, your own self-confidence, your own um, mental agility. But there's also things like um, how good your day is going. What happened to you yesterday? What's on your mind at that time? What's your socioeconomic class? What else is going on at that point? And then there's all these restraining forces, all these things holding you back, your self-doubt, socioeconomic reasons, all of those things. And so what happened to me that day was there was enough of an extra little bit of good stuff going on, sort of a sense of faith in humanity that pushed me over to the ability to actually change my behavior. 
And that's why one day you might be planning to diet and you can't diet. And then the next day you wake up and you're completely able to diet. That's because something has shifted in this field around you. All the forces holding you back, all the forces pushing you forward. And the way to think about it is each of us is sitting between those two forces at all times. Sometimes we're closer to our goal because either the positive forces are stronger and the negative forces are the same or the negative forces are less for some reason and we're pushing towards it. And then we're always in this field between these two things moving back and forth. And then, like as we just discussed earlier about this existential anxiety, that's a restraining force. But what's interesting about that, just the the fact of wanting to do something, to achieve a goal, make a personal change, actually can cause a restraint because we we get we start freaking ourselves out. That's right. That's so great. You point that out. That's exactly right. That the thing that changing comes with its own built-in restraining force. Right. There's other kinds of motivations where it's just basically these two fields, but change always has that existential accountability. And it also always has hope. So hope is always there. Like if you're going to plan on losing weight, you're hoping to lose weight. And so there's always hope as a positive force forward. But the problem is that hope too has its restraining element because hope can lead you to profound experiences of disappointment and helplessness. And so if you've had enough experiences of disappointment, hope is actually scary. And that's part of why hope is both a positive force and a restraining force. Well, let's dig into this idea of hope more because this is the first like book of psychology that I actually where they where you where it deals with hope very seriously because you often read about hope in terms of like you know like a religious book or something like that. Mm-hmm. In this realm of psychology, humanistic psychology, what is like what does it mean to hope for something? It's just like want something that you don't have or can't see, or what mm-hmm. is it? Well, first of all, I want to point out what an insane world we live in that hope is not a central element of what we're talking about in psychology. And that we have all these weird terms that psychology and psychiatry has made up that have very little meaning, like depression, anxiety, that they don't really have a meaning attached to them when hope does, right? I'm hoping for this thing. I am experiencing despair because I didn't get it. Like these words have been removed from therapeutic practices. It's very sad in a lot of ways. Because it treats people as if they're kind of like these broken things instead of recognizing they're dealing always with the same things everybody's dealing with, which is how do I hope for things and how do I deal with the despair of not getting them? So hope is not quite an emotion. It's sort of an emotion and a position that makes sense. So hope is, in a way, it's it's similar to other things that are emotions and, and positions like paranoia. Paranoia is not just a feeling. It's a position towards life. And hope is this attitude in which you place importance on something you want and you start moving towards it. So every time you hope, you're actually attributing to something an importance. So if, you, if the example is, you know, your parents ask you what you want for Christmas or Hanukkah and you say a bike, the minute you say bike, that thing becomes this important thing to you. You also notice at that point that you lack a bike. So two things are going on at the same time when you hope for something. It becomes important and you recognize you lack it. That means that hope always implies risk because if you don't get it, you recognize something you've now appointed as important you don't have and you recognize you you lack it. So every time you're trying to change something about yourself, you're going to be recognizing if you don't get it, you lack that thing that you want to change and it was important. And hope is this thing that moves you through uncertainty. You don't hope for something and know you'll get it. That's what makes it so evolutionarily important because hope is getting you through uncertainty, 
to a goal. It moves you to the goal through uncertainty. It's kind of very different than a cheaper emotion, which is optimism. Optimism is everything's going to be great. Hope is, I don't know if everything's going to be great, but it's going to drive me, move me towards that thing. And there's two very important qualities to hope. And, and if you take a survey on hope, you'll be taking Charles Snyder's survey typically. And there's two things he, he's looking for that hopeful people do. One is they have a belief in themselves. There's a sense of, I can do this. And the other is they find alternative pathways. So hopeful people, when you see a barrier, you try to figure out your way around it. And when you think about hopeful politicians, they're often talking about how we're going to work our way around something. They're not promising we'll get there. You know, Churchill's famous speech about we'll fight here, we'll fight there, we'll fight there. He never sends, he never says we'll beat the Germans. He's just talking about we're going to try every way possible to fight them. And that's, that's hope. That's where hope rests. It's this, uh, it's this, it's this emotion we experience through uncertainty. Well, okay. So you mentioned one element of hope is this belief in yourself that you're capable of, mm-hmm. of doing something. And that's that belief, like that's t- like faith comes up and like yeah. you also like hope and faith are also connected. And again, faith is one of those words we typically associate with, with faith and with religion and spirituality. But in, in this, in this model of, you know, of how people change, like what is faith? Yeah. That, so again, this is a real problem that we would think of these things as important in church and in synagogue and in mosque, but not important in therapy, Right. So faith is very similar to what Bandura, a social psychologist, calls um, self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is the belief that you can make things happen, that you're, that you're competent enough to control your life and to fix things and make things and, and be able to kind of take on something and, and make it work. That's different than self-esteem. And that's really what faith is in yourself, which is that I can get through this. I can figure out how to get through this. And so hope has that kernel of faith in it because that that element, what Snyder's pointing out is this sort of belief in yourself. That's kind of faith. That's faith, right? And when you've been met with lots of disappointments, you lose that faith in yourself. And if you lose that faith in yourself, you become afraid of hope because you're saying hope's going to bring me to that point again where things are going to fall apart because I'm going to get disappointed. I'm going to fail. And I don't know if I have enough faith in myself to handle that. No, so yeah, that's I mean that's a good point. So like these things, the faith and hope, they drive us. They they help us move forward in uncertainty. But as you said, it's a double edged sword because once you experience that defeat, you you don't get what you wanted, or you you had faith in yourself and your ability, and like it didn't work out. Like you just you go you you can fall into despair. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and also despair. The other term I would use for that is helplessness. The experience, I can't get my needs met. I can't make my life work. That's a profound experience, right? I'm driving this bus and I'm no good at making things work. That really beats you up, right? And so that's why the next time you're ready to hope, you're like, I don't want to have that experience again, that I'm not able to make my life work. That's a very profound terror. No. So yeah, I mean, that's a good point. So you mentioned like when you were talking about hope and giving an example of hope and the kid hoping for a bike at the holidays, if you don't get the bike, like you're, it's, it's a bummer, but you move Mm -hmm. on. But like Mm -hmm. when you say you hope to lose weight for the the 20th time, like that can be even more devastating because just like, it's about you. It's about, it's not a thing. It's about you as a person. Absolutely. That's right. Right. I mean, think about, think about COVID again, 
right? Like, uh, what were we hoping for when we massively adjusted our lives? We were hoping for the status quo. We weren't, we weren't hoping for some great thing to happen, right? So the challenge of hoping wasn't that great. It was just like, let's get through this thing. Right. But to say to yourself, I'm going to lose weight, that's like all the responsibilities on my shoulders. And I'm hoping for a thing that I'm going to, that, that, that makes me better than I am right now. And that makes that really kind of serious. Right. Because the pitfall is I'm not able to diet. If I'm not able to diet, simply do that. It, am I capable of doing other things? Who is this person driving the bus that's, that, that is my life? Right. Can I have faith in that person? Yeah, there's existential stakes whenever you make a, a a goal like that. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting your research on hope and this fear of hope. So, like, hope can cause a fear of hope because there's always a chance you're not gonna it's not gonna happen for you what you wanted. What you found is that people who are the most hopeful are actually the most afraid of hope. Um, or did I get that right? Did I read it wrong? Almost right. Okay, people who are very hopeful and have fear of hope are very agitated. Okay. They they get engaged in these things called counterfactuals where they're constantly thinking I should have done this, I should have done that. Right? Or this should have happened differently. They they don't they're less likely to see a positive event coming up than a person who doesn't have hope. And that kind of makes sense. Like a person who doesn't have hope, they're like, "Oh yeah, my graduation is coming up, big deal." Person who has hope, they're going, "Oh my god, I'm going to get excited about this." And then I'm going to be let down. And they get scared of it. They don't want to look at it. So what we're finding is that the relationship between hope and fear of hope is this sort of difficult, difficult situation. And what that means on some level is we might be, we might be actually diagnosing people as depressed or even in despair when actually they're people with a lot of hope, but they're afraid of it. It scares them. They're like a, they're like a high diver who's afraid of heights. And, and you make this case is really, I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive that... Okay, when you decide to hope for something, but you also have this fear of hope and you decide to let the fear drive your decision, we often think, well, that's not good. Mm-hmm. But you kind of make this counterintuitive taste that sometimes that's what needs to be done. Sometimes you have to just kind of stay the same because you still got some work you have to do before you can make that big change you're, you're hoping for. Yeah. So this, this, gets, this gets a little, con, not convoluted, but complex, maybe. Let's think about this for a second. So I'm afraid of trying something that will change my life because I'm afraid of that feeling of helplessness that's going to happen and despair if it doesn't happen again. And I'm afraid my hope's going to coax me into doing it and then I'm going to be let down. What am I protecting when I do that, when I don't change? I'm protecting my hope. (laughs) In a strange way, I'm protecting my capacity to keep hoping. I don't want it injured anymore. So I'm actually doing something that's that's nurturing of myself. I'm trying to kind of make sure that what hope I have is safe. So I'm playing possum. I'm not moving forward because I don't want that injured again. I'm staying still so that I don't get whatever motivates me more hurt. And so in the book, that's really what I'm talking about is, can you find a way to have some affection for staying the same? That's sure a better attitude towards staying the same than hating it right? And being shameful about it. That's such a disrespectful way to look at the fact that you didn't diet or you didn't work out or anything like that. It, it's not respecting that there's parts of you that are trying to take care of yourself that aren't working. And, and they come from self-love. And all love is messy. 
and inaccurate and screwed up and sometimes goes overboard. Uh, love is not some pure state. And so sometimes you go overboard and you protect yourself too much, but it's coming from the right place. Well, yeah, something you say about people who have a fear of hope. The thing they do to protect the hope that they have is they severely constrain their lives, mm-hmm. right? And like time kind of gets compressed. Like the only things you're worried about are things that happened a few months ago. And the only things you're kind of maybe excited about are the things that will happen in a few months, but you're not really hoping what's my life going to be like in a year two mm-hmm. years, three years. What my what are my kids going to be like? Grandkids, because you you don't want to hope that far in the future because there's a, there's a good chance it might not work out the way you hoped for. Right, right, exactly, right. You know, and so then what what are you doing there? You're trying to protect what hope you have from another injury, and that kind of makes sense. You know, it's not great. You know, you end up staying the same, but on the other hand, you're doing something that has some sense to it. And the more you can respect that, maybe even find it kind of beautiful that you're doing it, the more likely you are to change. It just doesn't work to like hate yourself for not change. That just doesn't work. Shame. If you want to, if you want to really be stuck, be shameful. That'll, that'll keep you stuck. No, this idea of like hope and being afraid of hope reminds me of like uh, that, that saying, I don't know if it's connected, but it sounds kind of the same. Like Mm -hmm. cynics are just idealists who are have been disappointed over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I think people like hopeful people, they're just like people who, who are afraid of hope. They're just, they're hopeful people, but they've just been, they feel like they've been burned so many times that they, they get kind of like, I'm not going to put my, I'm not going to hope this time because <laughs> it, yeah. it'll feel bad. Yeah. yeah. I would just adjust that just a little bit from people who are, uh, you and I are afraid of hope. I mean, some people are yes. just more afraid of it. Than us. I mean, you know, there's not a single theologian out there that says, go hope, it's easy, right? They're always talking about it. Hope and courage go together. That it, it takes some strength to face hope. And if it takes some strength to face hope, there must be something scary about it. And there's what's scary about it is hope is always about risk. And I'm that's not my that's not something I made up. Every theologian's talked about hope is a risky attitude. You're climbing a mountain. Every step you take towards hope means a bigger fall if the thing doesn't work out. And that's why religion has always been about hope and faith. It's trying to kind of get people to act on hope. It's a really evolutionary thing. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So, okay, staying the same. So like say someone makes a goal to lose weight or maybe they want to change their job, but like they haven't made the move because there's a whole bunch of reasons. You give like a whole bunch of reasons. In the, the years you've been working with people, you found different reasons, like different things that people are protecting. Mm-hmm. When, they de- when you say when they decide, they might not know they're making a decision, but you know, when they decide, okay, I'm not going to move forward on that change that I hope for. And one of them... It's just pain. Like, yeah, we, we've been kind of talking about this, but this pain of one pain is just the fear of existential freedom. Mm-hmm. And we'd rather just, like as we talked about earlier, just escape from that. I mean, any examples of people you worked with where the reason why they stayed the same is because they were f- afraid of that existential freedom? Yeah, I would say that most of the people I deal with, you know, now this is me applying my ideas on them, and I'm I'm pretty much against people deciding what other people's experiences are. But sure, <laughs> but my way of looking at things is that most of the people I'm dealing with, this is what they're struggling over. They're having a major existential crisis 
partly caused by the fact that they've had a massive disappointment because of having been diagnosed with a psychiatric issue. And so they're dealing with, you know, if I'm free, I'm accountable. And if I'm accountable, can I actually get my hopes up again? You know, can I have another experience of kind of loss regarding this? And so for most of them, I think this is going on for them. Well, and you, you also talk, you bring this other essential idea of, of bad faith and good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, good faith, I think this is from Sartre. Yeah. Who, yeah. yeah. You said that like, you know, good faith is when you recognize that you are accountable, right? You're not, you know, you might not be responsible for the, the hands you're dealt in life, but you are responsible for how you respond. And that's the scary thing. Bad faith is whenever you pretend you don't have that like ability or accountability or responsibility. And you know, I remember you talked about one person you worked with who did something that looked like good faith but was actually bad faith. I guess what it was is he, he set up this like system of uh, accountability where people checked in with him. So he had people oh, yeah. check in with him, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like it's, it looked like good faith in that he was setting up this system, but it was actually kind of a bad faith move because he wanted other people just to take care of it. He wanted to set up the system and then he didn't have to think about it after that. Right, right. That was a that was a fascinating thing. That's right. That's right. So he he wanted these these you know we kept telling him you know we, because I, I run this program that you know it's twenty four hours. So he just kept telling me you could call any time if there's a crisis, right? But he wanted check ins to make sure he wasn't in crisis, and and that's bad faith because he, what he wanted was this sense that people were kind of there automatically responding to him. And that he was this sort of passive person that they were taking care of. Because passivity is kind of the art of bad faith, right? And to call us would mean that he was an agent. He was making this happen. So that that's a really significantly injured person, right? That they, they, they knew that they had this service where they could call any time, but they didn't want to use the service because they were so terrified of actually being an agent, making things happen, right? And that's kind of classic for a lot of the people I work with. You know, but, but right now, you know, you and I are talking, this is a good faith interaction. I'm feeling completely like I'm my own agent of my life right now. You know, I feel like I'm spewing out words and ideas that are my own and I'm accountable for those things. When I leave and I walk home, I'm going to be thinking about how I have to be home at a certain time. And that have to is bad faith because I'm acting as if that time I have to be home is something I have to do instead of I want to do because I don't want to piss people off that I'm late and I'm making that decision. So our days are filled with these back and forth between good and bad faith, right? And some of that's, some of that's just functional. You can't just go through life seeing everything as a choice, but some of it's because we just are sort of terrified of this idea that there's a lot of choices in front of us. Well, I mean, so going back to this idea where that, that can actually be useful. Because I think people are hearing that like, well, that's not good. Bad faith sounds not uh-huh. good where you pretend like you don't have accountability for your life. But like, say they talk about this guy who set up this system. Like, mm-hmm. it sounded like it was useful for him. Can it, like, can that be a way where he sort of works his way up to building good faith? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell this other story about, I mean, you know, and, and these are extreme stories because these are people that have been under extreme experiences of disappointment. Right. But, I'm, but this is another example. I had a guy in a group and I hated this, but I was a junior therapist at the time. So we were asked, we had to ask them to give a number to their mood, which is sort of dumb, but, and he would always say every week he was a two, which is really low in depression. Like he was a two. 
with 10 being, you know, doing really well. And he'd say it two every week. But there were these women in the group who went to church with him and they'd come into my office and they'd tell me things like he was starting to date. Like he spoke at the church the other day, like he got his own apartment, like he got a job. And then one day he didn't show up. He never showed up again. And so he needed us to kind of stay in this place of seeing him as a two, not scare him with our expectations going up about his own agency, right? That he can make his life work. In order for him to escape bad faith, he couldn't have us be part of it and get excited for him. And so that was sort of his method to get out of it. No, that's, a, that's another one of the 10 reasons why we don't change. The fear of just expectations from ourselves and others, right? Once you tell people, your wife, like, oh, this, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to lose in weight. This is the time I'm going to do it. And she's like, yes. And then, mm-hmm. you know, a week later, you're, you know, got the, the burrito taco enchilada <laughs> meal. Yeah. And, and you know, she's disappointed and you feel it. And you're like, I just don't want to experience. I'm not even going to say, <laughs> I'm trying to make a change. Right. Right, exactly. That raising other people's expectations means raising them seeing your your that you're the master of your life, and having other people witness that is scary, right? Because then you can let them down. You witness yourself letting them down, and you feel bad about yourself. So you try to avoid that. And one way to avoid that is to not change, right? You stay miserable so that you don't have to face the misery of a disappointment in front of them. And the same goes with our own selves. We don't want to raise our own expectations. And we sort of stay in this state, this possum-like state, because we don't want to have that experience of being, you know, raising our hopes and then be, having them dashed. And I mean, so this one guy you talked about who was, who went to your, your group therapy session said he's a two, like, yeah, that was kind of his way out of it. Right? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It, smart. Yeah. It was smart. But I mean, how else, have, how, how else have you seen people overcome this fear of just expectations? Is it just... Does it come naturally? Does it come when you're ready? What happens there? I, I think that it's a couple things. One is that I really don't think that you can develop hope. You have to develop faith. So the more people kind of get better at things, get better at life, the more willing they are to kind of risk hoping again, right? And so the more willing they are to kind of face the fact that things might not work out, but they'll survive. So I've seen that in my own life. You know, the more I've gotten good at things, anything the more I kind of feel like I can kind of survive other disappointments. And I've seen that in my, in my clients, you know, the more that they can kind of take care of themselves and be in charge of their lives, uh, the more willing they are to take uh, greater risks. I guess, you know, the one story I tell in the book is this guy I used to kind of know back in the, the, the punk scene in LA who wanted to quit smoking. And, and he did actually the opposite of the, the, the guy that gave the, the two. He took pictures of himself looking like an idiot smoking. And he called these idiot cards and he plastered them and he was really well known in LA and people loved him. So he plastered these all over the clubs and the bathrooms and the clubs all over the place. And it was his way of kind of reminding himself in in a way that, you know, continuing on with this behavior wasn't actually working for him. It was this kind of reflection of this thing, but he also made it into kind of a performance because he got all these other people involved in it in a way where they were reflecting to him. And it held him accountable in this other kind of way that helped him finally quit. It was kind of a beautiful little piece of performance art in some ways. Well, you mentioned one thing that people kind of get out of overcome these fears of expectations or freedom is you know they they start taking small steps um, yeah. in different areas of life. It might even not even might not even be related to the like that the big issue in their life, right? Whether they think they're depressed or they've got you know something else, but they they decide you know what I'm gonna in this one area of my life where the stakes aren't that big. 
I'm going to make these small steps. But then another reason like people don't change is because like small steps, like that's kind of undignified, right? It's like, that's, Mm -hmm. that's for babies. Like I'm, I'm a grown man. I'm going to make big changes now. And so a lot of people think, well, it's not even worth it. If I have to do like these little minuscule steps and not make much progress, then I'll just stay the same. Yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's another word that you don't hear in therapy enough, which is humility that, um, when you head out towards a goal, if you find every small step to be insulting, because every small step reminds you where you are, right? It reminds you how far you are from the goal. Matter of fact, if you don't take those small steps, you can dream all you want that you're really close to the goal and never never change, right? It's really easy to kind of think, oh yeah, I could do that tomorrow. But to take the small steps is this kind of painful event of having to look at where you are in relationship to your goal. If you're afraid of hope, you'll never take those small steps. Or if you have this kind of overblown version of yourself where you think you can achieve it right away, you'll never take the small steps. And the danger in that is that every small step, once it's completed, actually adds to your faith in yourself. If you can do it, it adds to your faith, and the next day you're going to take the next step. But you got to get on that, those steps along the way in order to keep going. You have to these fuel each other if you can get on the tr- track. But the problem is you're terrified and, you're, and it's painful because each one is an insult. Right. I mean, so like, I'm trying to think of a problem. Like, you know, if you have to, if you need, if you're trying to get a promotion at your job, a career that means a lot to you, it might mean you have to take some sort of remedial course or go through some like continued education class that you think is really easy and you're going to look like an idiot and you're just like, ah, I'm not even going to do that. Cause it's, but like, right. if you had hope and you wanted to act on that hope, like you would do it, you would, ha- and you had the humility, you would do it. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly right. And then so the humility is kind of needed at that point of the small steps, right? You know, the the story of Icarus is really fascinating because Icarus's dad, who was the god of craft, which is amazing, right? Because craft is all about small steps. You have to really get skilled at craft. And he built Icarus these wings and the wings had two problems with it. One was, you know, we know about the sun, right? They'd melt if he got to, if he got, if he had hubris, if he got too close to the sun. But if he got too close to the ocean, they'd get wet and get destroyed. And that's humility. And that, that's humiliation, right? And so you have to kind of float between those two things. You can't be kind of like worried all the time that I'll feel bad about myself and humiliated if I, if I, if I take this small step. And you also can't be living in this world where, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm above those small steps. So we say we hope for a change, but sometimes we just stay the same because like we're afraid, we're trying to protect ourselves from all these things we've been talking about. The fear of freedom, the expectations, the indignity of small steps. So like, I mean, I think we kind of hit on it, but it's like how, the first step is looking at these things as maybe not as a negative because that will just, I don't know, kind of taint things and make you Mm -hmm. feel worse about yourself, which just sort of creates this vicious cycle. It's not good. Mm-hmm. So like, what is the solution? So to this, these tensions of that, that's created of, of hoping and then you hope causes fear of hope and all. I mean, it's like, yeah, what, what do you do? You just, uh, like, how, what do you, when you work with a, <laughs> when you work with a, with a client, like, what does that process look like of, of change when they finally happens for them? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm in this awkward position of writing a kind of self-help book that gives no advice. Right, because I really don't believe that like advice on what you need to do to change works. What I think works, and what science shows, is contemplation from a non-judgmental space. Right. In other words, I'm doing this 
for this reason. That's why I have 10 reasons not to change, right? I'm doing it for this reason. I could do it for this reason. And I'm looking at both and I'm weighing them, right? You're not going to do that if you look at sameness as bad. You're never going to look at the reasons for it, right? And so real change happens. Real sustainable change happens when you're able to say, there's some good in this behavior I want to change. And I have to say goodbye to that good in order to move forward. If all you say is that is, is that lie to yourself, that everything about this thing is bad, it's very hard to move forward. That's really what is happening now in some ways in, with people with problematic habits or what people call addiction, is that we're discovering that if a person can discuss and think about why they like using, why it's important in their lives, what it does for them, they're actually more likely to give it up than somebody where it's just about, you know, you're screwed up because you're an addict. And, and that's what I'm trying to do in the book. I'm trying to say, you know, spend some time looking at this thing and appreciating it. Because if you do that, you can probably leave it behind. You can retire it. You're never going to retire it if all you think is it's bad and that you're bad because you're doing it. Well, it sounds like it's a good analogy. You'd be like a protective, overprotective parent, right? Overprotective uh-huh. parent isn't, they're not doing it out of like, a, you know, they have this urge to be a totalitarian. They're usually doing it out of like a sense of love and they want to protect you. But at yeah. a certain point, they have to realize that's actually not going to help my kid. I need to back off if I really do love them. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a, I have a, 22-year-old son who's planning a big road trip right now. My wife and I are discussing whether it's a good idea for him to do it. And it's like, what are we doing? This kid's 22, you know? But but we love him and we're worried about him. And if we were to intervene on that in some way, we, we would be doing something not good. But it would be coming, it, it would be coming out of our love. It wouldn't be coming out of anything bad. It would sure piss him off and it wouldn't feel good. But it's not bad. It's just love that's not being controlled right so let's kind of recap big picture overview of what we've talked about so far Mm -hmm. so there's this whenever you want something you hope for something automatically there's um, a tension that's created right between Mm -hmm. where you are you don't have the thing and where you're at the thing you'd like and by thing i I asked already we're talking about personal change here so not talking about a bike or an ipad or whatever Mm -hmm. and then whenever you start hoping that's a driving force towards the thing you want. Mm-hmm. But then also there's a, a, a countervailing restraining force, which is the fear of hope. And then there's also faith is driving us towards it. We have this capacity. We have faith in ourselves and, and the ability to, to do what we want or what we need to do to achieve that thing we'd like. But there's also a countervailing restraint to there. That's like, um, you know, you, you mess up and you, your actions don't give you the results you wanted. And embedded in that, there's all these other driving and restraining forces, like you were talking about earlier. You're in a good mood. Uh, your family's supportive. You, it's, the weather's nice, but also restraining things like you just people are annoying. <laughs> you know, co- customer service experience that went bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that can all affect things as well. Did I get That's that right? Great, man. Okay. That's awesome. Okay. Thank you. Wanna That's make, great. <laughs> and then, yeah. And, and then the other thing, you know, sometimes we decide in all the mix of this, these tensions and driving forces just to stay the same because that's easier <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. and it protects where we are now. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. That's right. And I think the, the only thing I want to add to that, you know, is that sometimes those restraining forces are out of our control. Right. And so I, I give this example in the, uh, or story in the book about, a woman who works in the cafeteria who wants to go back to college and has to drive to her college through rush hour 
to get to class and then has to drive all the way home, has to find parking on campus, is dealing with having to take care of her kids too. And she may be filled with hope and have low fear of hope and still not do as well as a person with high fear of hope and lots of hope who's the executive in her company where the cafeteria is and someone drives them to the class and you know someone helps them with his homework and all those sorts of things. So there's all kinds of other restraints than simply our existential choice. There's all kinds of other socioeconomic restraints, gender restraints, all kinds of restraints on us as we move through life. I definitely don't want this book to be something like Tony Robbins. I just don't believe that we can think things and beautiful things will happen. I don't believe it. There's, there's, there's plenty of political and economic forces against us as we move forward in life. But the, the other, I mean, yeah, that's true. But you also make this point, like Sartre would say, it's like, yes, there are restraints, but we, we have the ability, like we can navigate that. It's going to be hard, Yeah. but we can take a posture towards the, the, these restraints that's hopeful, faithful, and I'm not going to say positive because I, I don't want to get with, but like, yeah, you're, you're, you have efficacy um, yes. in the yeah. world. Yeah. yeah. And your response to the world. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, it just sounds like too, you know, I, I think it's interesting. We've been talking about faith, hope, humility. I mean, I think another thing that's required for change is like patience. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's not really talked about. Oftentimes you, you, when you go to a therapist, it's like, well, here's our plan. We'll meet for three weeks. And then, you know, a month, once a month after that, and then, then you're done. It's like, it sounds like your idea is like, no, it could take a year or two to, I don't say, I don't even know if you solved things completely. It doesn't sound like you solved things completely, but get for things to get better. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, uh, this, this, you know, this book Zorba the Greek, it was also a movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there's this scene in Zorba the Greek that's just so beautiful where he, he finds a, a chrysalis with a, with a, um, caterpillar that's slowly becoming it's it's just about to the point where it's becoming a butterfly and he decides to help it so he starts opening up the chrysalis and of course the thing dies in his hands and he's like that's just about the most sinful thing you can do he says this in the book you know like not letting something just sort of emerge in its own time right it's just an awful thing to do to it and and we're and, and we're doing that too much to ourselves we're not respecting the fact that you know, it might take uh, getting on an elevator and with some coffee spillers for us to feel like I can move forward today. You know, you have to wait for your field to be in the right place sometimes, and you have to be patient with that. Well, another thing you talk about, you were talking about all these different restraining forces that we don't have control over, but another like driving force that can help us is our social environment. Mm-hmm. That can play a, And so surrounding yourself with people who are supportive and understanding, et cetera, that can help a lot. I mean, that's maybe like, you know, a lot of, that's why we, people go to group therapy or join AA because it's just being around people who got their back or they feel like they got their back. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to tell you, you know, it, it's amazing how little sort of the psychotherapeutic professions understand motivation and how well social psychology understands motivation. Social psychology has it down, and they've done research after research on that. And this is about things like a sense of your value and your community, your purpose, your social support. These are all the things in a person's field that actually move them forward. I mean, you know, social psychology is basically kind of the study of motivation on some level, on some level. And it's all about this thing about what are the things going on around you that get you to move forward. And one of the main ones is social support. Social support is just this medicine right? That kind of moves you forward. 
I got this uh, cousin of mine that does this research where he he has people sit in a chair and he he he's a social psychologist and he has them sit in a chair and he has this tarantula in this plexiglass box move closer to them down this ramp and they they actually can control how close it gets and people that only think about negative support only think about it they don't they don't have less social support than the other people think that that tarantula is closer to their face than the people that think about positive social support not that they have more social support two people walking towards a hill will see will be more accurately measure the 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 height of that hill and how hard it will be to travel that hill than one person so social support has all kinds of things to do with how we look at threats and how we look at challenges and so surrounding yourself with people feeling connected to people is just vital to to us moving forward we know that isolation ties with uh, cholesterol and smoking for heart disease and that's because of all the cortisol that's in your system when you're isolated right it affects all it makes you paranoid it, it causes all kinds of problems for people. So these are all social things. They're not necessarily psychological. Yeah, social support can help you be more of an individual, like with good faith, right? That, has, that, mm-hmm. that, under, that sees that they are accountable and responsible for their life. That's kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive. Like you need the group to become an individual. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really great though. <laughs> it's right. a really great kind of paradox that uh, you can't be too lonely to be alone you know, with yourself, that these things really feed our ability to be original and creative with our lives is this sense that we're connected to others. Well, Ross, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? My, my work is at ellenhorn.com. That's our, that's my company. And then the book is, you know, it's Amazon. It's everywhere. It's, it's HarperCollins and they can just look it up how we change and the 10 reasons why we don't. Well, fantastic. Well, Ross Ellenhorn, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Thank you. My guest today was Ross Ellenhorn. He's the author of the book, How We Change and 10 Reasons Why We Don't. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, ellenhorn.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash change, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.